Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. We love to have a variety of voices and perspectives on this show. Some of those voices are going to challenge us, and some we're just going to outright disagree with. But hearing multiple angles on these hard topics, it cultivates the virtues of both humility and wisdom in us. We hope having these conversations provides a model for how Christians with differing opinions can relate to one another. My name's Adam Hawkins, and I'm here with my friend Elizabeth Woodson. Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great. Well, today we are talking with Lee Camp about Christianity and politics. Lee is a professor of theology and ethics at Lipscomb University, and he's an excellent author. Today, we're going to chat with him about his most recent book, Scandalous Witness, A Little Political Manifesto for Christians. Dr. Kemp, is there something about you in particular that maybe isn't covered by the professional bio that you think is important for people to know about you? Well, that's a big question. Yeah, there would be all sorts of things, but it would probably distract us from our conversation. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam and Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be with you all, and I appreciate the invitation to, to talk with you today. Well, Dr. Camp, I was personally challenged by and helped immensely by Scandalous Witness. It's a book that I think captures so well uh, a moment, a unique moment in culture, maybe would be the way to say that. But I'd love to just know, maybe we start by saying, what led you to write the book? And for Mm. our listeners who maybe haven't read it yet, um, give us maybe a brief summary. Yeah. Well, um, that's my my third book, and books are uh, a you know, they require a lot of an author, the time and the emotional investment. And my second book, which I still think is a pretty good book, but hardly anybody read it. And so after the second book, I I don't know if I'm going to publish another book. It's so much work and so much time, but I had been working on some of these ideas for quite some time. And um, Trevor Thompson from Erdman's Press came by my office one day. He said, hey, and he, he described to me some of the sorts of books that they are publishing right now, which I'm very, uh, very much admire what Erdman's is doing. And, um, but Trevor said, you got anything you're working on? And I said, well, actually, I do have some stuff I've been working on. He said, I'll send, I'll send you an outline and see. So within about a month, we had a contract and we were off and running. So that was kind of the most proximate thing that actually led to the writing of the book. But conceptually, um, it was material that, um, was repackaging, I guess, a lot of stuff that I've thought about for several decades now. And that is that I really do think that uh, I believe in the beauty and the truth of the Christian story and the gospel. And it seems to me that in many ways, as I say somewhat cantankerously in the book, you know, I I think that in many ways, Christians don't know what Christianity is and that we, um, we think we know what it is. And we think we, we think we love the Bible and we think we love the gospel I think in many ways, we simply don't know what the gospel is or what Christianity is. And so I was trying to repackage a lot of the the teaching and and thinking I've done through a lot of years to try to make it relevant to the current sociopolitical moment and uh, to kind of pose a challenge, I think, to the various hostile partisan forms of Christian witness that we're seeing in the United States today. Yeah, I think that's a great start. I want to comment, though, that I love the way you laid the book out. 
uh, the book's laid out chapter by chapter, and each chapter starts with a short proposition, maybe a paragraph long that explains an argument. Um, and then if the reader wants, they can go and read the rest of the chapter, which expands on the argument. And that makes the book really easily digestible. I think it's also important to point out, though, like the central argument of the book, all those propositions build to this argument. And the argument's really stating that in some ways we, in, we as Christians have failed to understand what Christianity is. It's not simply a story of God just rescuing his people from like a fallen earth. It's not like a heaven's gate, like we're going to ex- escape this place. But Christianity really has, as, at its heart, it is a politic. And I, hopefully we'll get to that later. But r- my definition of that is that you kind of say the Christianity as a politic lays out a vision for how people ought to relate to one another and order society. It's not, and, and then I love that you say, how we're going to order that society, you don't call back to some form of like an imperialist Christendom or something. You instead argue that Christianity as a politic is neither right nor left, but it brings an alternative kingdom. And that kingdom is constructive, not critical or not just critical. And then you say that as this alternative constructive kingdom, the church, its main role in this, in this new kingdom is to display the wisdom of God to the powers of the world. And I think all the implications of that mean that the church has to remain above and distinct, not subordinate to or dependent on parties or nations or other political ideologies. Yeah, after I remember when I was in um, working on my PhD in grad school days, um, I had already done undergrad and I had done three and a half years of seminary doing an MDiv and an MA. And then I'm, then I'm coming into another five years of doing a PhD. And in my first semester of doing a PhD, I thought I need to go learn a little bit about reading and because I know I'm going to be inundated with so much stuff to read. And I came across this study that took three groups of people and the first group of people um, read the, the assignment from first to last. The second group of people read just a summary, and the third group of people read the whole thing and a summary. And when the, then they tested comprehension of the material. And the people who had read the whole thing in a summary obviously knew the most about what it meant. But what they discovered was that the people who had read just a summary knew more about the reading than the people who had read the whole thing. And it kind of ticked me off. Because yeah. I was like, Why didn't nobody <laughs> told me this? My teachers have been fooling me all these years, you know? And so, so I've, I've tried to take that seriously in my own teaching. It's like, you know, I want people to, in conversation, I want us to learn together, right? So uh, the way I, I did lay it out there, as you noted, Adam, is a way of me trying to honor the reader and say, this is more important to learn stuff together rather than to have a lot of words thrown at us. Second thing I, I wanted to say to affirm what you just said is that um, I I was just it had been several months since I looked at looked at this book. And so I was going back through this morning, preparing to talk to you guys. And I was reminded again of how I don't feel affirmed by my own words, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that this doesn't make me feel good about myself yeah. <laughs> um, because it's like this. The, the call of Christ is beautiful and compelling and challenging. Mm. And it requires me constantly day by day to give up some of my own privilege, some of my own sense of what I'm entitled to, some of my own sense of um, my sort of righteousness in the world and the posture that it calls us to. And so I would just like to say, you know, because I hear from some people that they'll say this stuff makes me uncomfortable. And I think, well, yeah, it makes me uncomfortable too. And I think that's part of the deal. If we're going to really take Christian discipleship seriously is regular moments of feeling uncomfortable 
and asking, how do I need to change? And how may I best bear witness to the call of God that has come to us in this radical incarnate way in Christ? Mm. You know, the this idea of us being uncomfortable uh, at the very beginning, you kind of push up against this. You push up against a lot of ideas in a really good way. Um, <laughs> but that for those who say Christianity is not political, um, mm. and you kind of just push right through that. And so for our listeners, um, because you talk about we need to reconfigure our political witness. Like we need yeah. to have this politic that's based in this beautiful Christian story. And so can you just paint a picture of what you mean by when people say that they believe Christianity isn't political, you probably don't really understand what Christianity is. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, thanks for that, Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, it's this, I think what you said at the end is, is a perfect introduction to this, right? I think when people say Christianity is not political, it just shows they have not understood Christianity. Now, obviously, when one says that in our current context, it would be natural for someone to assume that the speaker who says Christianity is political, there therefore has some sort of partisan, U.S. partisan political agenda, and that they're then going to turn around and reduce Christian public witness to uh, the Democratic Party platform or the Republican Party platform. But that's not what I mean by saying Christianity is political at all. The word politics, the root word polis, it was uh, the Greek word for the city or the city state. And so politics, classically understood, is the art of arranging the affairs of the community. It's the art of having shared discourse about how do we arrange the affairs of our community. And when we realize that's what politics is, it's just taking seriously a shared common life, uh, that it asks questions like, um, how do you deal with transgressions? How do you deal with people violating other people's boundaries or causing offense? How do you deal with reconciliation? How do you how do you arrange marriages and think about what what's the relationship between the partners in a marriage? How do you think about things like money? How do you think about things like enemies? It's like ding 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 ding, right? That's what Jesus is talking about all the time. And so and and moreover, you know, when the Synoptic Gospels especially summarize Jesus' message, so you think about Matthew four, for example, right before the preface to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five to seven. Chapter four, verse 17 says, Jesus goes out proclaiming the good news, saying, change for the kingdom of heaven is here. He doesn't say, hey, good news. You get to have a personal relationship with Jesus and go to heaven when you die. Mm. He doesn't say, um, you know, here's a way to make sense of your existential angst and find some sort of notion of meaning in the world. What he says is a kingdom is here. And a kingdom is a political entity, and it's a political the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, defined by the way of Christ and the teachings of Christ, is an alternative politic to the nation states of this world. And there are there are worse and better nation states. There's no question about it in my mind. But nonetheless, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God has fundamentally different political commitments than nation states do. And so rearranging this notion of, yes, Christianity is political. And if we're going to be true to the gospel, it means learning to bear witness to the political particularities or the political specifics of the kingdom of heaven. That's such a hard 
I, what I love is you you say that and then you explain it. And so I, this is going to be long winded because that's how I am. For y'all know me. Um, <laughs> what's fascinating to me, if I look, I want to ask you how you think we got here. But if I look at our current political moment and I try to be charitable, you have people who are really afraid of the future. I feel like mm -hmm. fear is a, a big yeah. component of where we're at. And they're afraid and they look out and they see this rapid change in the world. And there's an illiberalism that has infected a lot of the progressive stances um, that you see. There's a really, people feel like there are real dangers. And it's not just that you disagree, but that your disagreement could cost, mm -hmm. right? There's a, 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 a sense in which um, a lot of the maybe more nominal Christian, I don't know, maybe just the fabric of the Judeo-Christian uh, underpinnings that we agreed on are sort of, sort of becoming pulled apart. On the other side, you know, there's a huge spectrum. On the other side, you see, especially with the 2016 election, you see people look out and, or maybe starting there, maybe before, and, and see, wait a minute, like there's this party, the Republicans, and all these evangelicals are voting for them, and yet the person who the things the person is is claiming trump is saying i'm the one who can solve the problems i'm the you know etc he's got a, some character defects and and everything else and so you have people who are very disenchanted with um politics in general and the the my point in kind of trying to frame where we are is to say i think what happens is people can hear a message like the one you just said that there is an alternative kingdom that Christ presents. And then the thing that we can do in our minds is then just baptize what's already happening in the partisan politics. So it's like, yes, there is an alternative. And you know what? Republicans represent that alternative because they're against abortion and they are against, you know, they're for traditional marriage. And then on the other side, progressives can baptize it and say, well, God's about love and uh, he cares for the poor and he talks about that all the time and Democrats are the only ones who care about the poor. And then you think that you are, your party in some way is providing the alternative kingdom narrative. And so maybe a, my first question um, is just to say, where is the failure? What, what's the failure in that mistake to look and go, well, this party most represents the kingdom of God. What's the flaw in that thinking? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, and it's a it's a very um, the potential things one has to consider. I think to give us anywhere close to a sufficient answer are many, um, but um, I think one one place to uh, the kind of two things that kind of immediately bubble up for me, and um, and that is the. The, the use of illiberal, you know, because there's a lot, there's a lot of talk in these days about sure. the Ill, illiberal left. Um, I would want to say we, we also need to be talking about the illiberal right um, because, you know, there is a such, you know, I, I've sometimes um, received the painful end of some pushback from the so-called illiberal left. And I've also received actually a whole lot more feedback and pushback from this, what I would call the illiberal right. And so we got to, well, what do we even mean by illiberal, right? So in classical political liberalism, there's an assumption that we trust the free exchange of ideas and we hear each other and we're not threatened by the notion that truth can kind of show itself in the free exchange of ideas. That's, that's at least one kind of common procedural 
commitment of liberal of, of pla- a classical political liberalism. And again, just as I, as I discuss at length in the book, and a lot of people are talking about these days, it's important to know that when we talk about liberalism, we don't mean Democrats. By liberalism, we mean the American political, the, the political philosophy that undergirds American constitutional democracies, um, American and other constitutional democracies. And that is there's a commitment to the individual and the preeminent importance of the individual, of representative government of some sort, of um but but one way to think about what what liberalism is, and Patrick Deneen at, at Notre Dame has done a great job with this in his book, While Liberalism Failed, is that one way to think about what liberalism is, is it's a definition of freedom. And it defines freedom as freedom from unchosen constraints. So you see that on the right, right? The way this plays out on the right is in the free market. So the idea is, it's my money. No one should tell me what to do with my money. I should be free to do what I want to do with my money. On the left, you could see this in terms of it's my body. I can do what I want to do with my body. No one should tell me what to do with my body. And so from a liberal conception of defining freedom as freedom, they're both right. Um, But in classic virtue traditions and in the Bible, um, that's not the way freedom is defined. In these older traditions, Freedom is defined as a capacity to do what one ought or the capacity to do what is excellent towards a particular vision of what it means to be human or what it means to have a common good. And so the classic example is from Aristotle, for example, is if you take an untutored child who wants to be an excellent musician, that child doesn't become an excellent musician by saying, leave me alone. Let me do what I want. That's liberalism. Mm -hmm. Let me do what I want. Aristotle would look at that and say, that's childish, and you'll never accomplish anything that way. Better is to go under a rightful authority and the practice of discipline. And then at the end of decades of practicing, then you can become an excellent musician. Well, that's a very different picture of freedom. And so liberalism has this freedom from constraint notion of freedom. Other visions say that's not what freedom is. That's a sort of potentially childish notion of freedom. Um, I do want to insert a parenthetical here before I go on to say that um, I'm not going to, I am not myself, because I'm of of Anabaptist tendency, um, want to say that I thereby completely dismiss the potential goods of liberalism. Sure. Um, Because actually, I don't think anybody should tell people what to do with regard to a lot of things. but that's a, that's we could go down that conversation if you want. Second thing I want to know here real quick is that um, it seems to me that a lot of the fear that you mentioned, Adam, seems to be bubbling up a lot among. I'm I'm hesitant to even say this because I know that I don't I don't have social science data to back up what I'm going to say. So I'm, I'll just say I'm I'm telling you one person's perspective on that. But part of my perspective on that is that it seems that what we hear from a lot of people about the fear is that um, for some of those folks, it's people of privilege who see things changing and they're scared by that. Whereas um, if you look back at the history of the United States, there have been a lot of people who have never had privilege and have never had safety and security under the auspices of classical political liberalism. Um, When you think about the the plight of Native Americans, when you think about the fact that our economy was built on the back of 15 million 
enslaved Africans. Uh, when you think about the ways in which American imperialism devastated various communities uh, in just horrific ways, um, that there have been lots of people that have had great fear because of what they were receiving from the American empire. And um, we can celebrate, there's certain good things about America, but it's, 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 it's disingenuous if we're not also able to say, but you know what, there's a lot of horrific historic sin and damage that's come through this American experiment. And so I think if we're, talk, if we're gonna talk about fear, we need to have a pretty broad vision mm -hmm. of whose fears count mm -hmm. and why we're counting only a particular set of fears and not other folks' fears. Yeah. That's really helpful. It's it's maybe to restate it. It sounds like we need to have a self-reflective, yeah. um, self you know, a, 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 yeah, self-reflective and and be truthful about the past in ways that um, we don't simply bury our head in the sand and say things are changing and it's all horrible and look what they're doing to you know, abortion or, you know, some, some specific issue, you know, cause we can get kind of myopic in our vision, but instead to be self-reflective and say, there's great things about our history. There's horrible things about our history. All those have a impact, right? Yeah. Cause it, it is this, that when we have uh, this long range vision, when we're able to acknowledge the good and the bad, um, I think part of that is separating ourselves from our commitment to the American empire. And I think I want to say this really graciously and charitably um, because this uh, reframing our political witness, you talk about an ad hoc political witness right. that we're able to be judge and critic, but we're also able to celebrate the good things. Mm -hmm. And so back to what you were talking about, Adam, is I think we feel the need to choose a side instead of saying my side <laughs> And I feel like this this sounds really spiritual, but my side is with the Lord and I'm able to acknowledge the good about a particular side and the bad about a particular side. But my commitment is to neither. My commitment is to pushing forward this Christian politic. And I think a lot of times there's this pressure to find allegiance with a particular side and not the um, the conviction that we should not ultimately find allegiance in either side. Yes. Yeah, I, I very much agree. Um and I think the other the, the other piece of this that um, maybe I haven't articulated sufficiently um, that I think is central to all this is that when we talk about the alternative politic of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, um, in my mind, and this is this is a debate. I'm a minority viewpoint in the Christian tradition, but in my mind, uh, central to that is a commitment to nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And that makes all that makes a huge difference in the way all of these things shake out, right? So there's a sort of radical commitment to grace that allows other people to choose against what one believes to be true, and um, and not impose one's will or impose one's vision of truth on other people. And so that that's in my mind central to why the the going back to your question adam about how, how have we so easily baptized one political party over the other it's because i think that we've we've assumed that it's legit to impose our view upon others um and i i don't i don't buy that um and so there's this sort of stance of um radical freedom that seems to be central to the gospel 
And again, this stuff makes me really uncomfortable. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a I'm a Southern white man, and we have this kind of strong sense of what we think is right and wrong, yeah. and people ought to do what's right and wrong, you know. And and if you don't, then there ought to be some consequences. Um, and um, yet yet the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he says, look, you know, if you get done wrong, um, overcome evil with good. Mm-hmm. If your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he he presumes in Romans 13 that there are certain powers that check chaos and check violence. And so the powers have a place in in the human unfolding of human history. Uh, but their role is something like a, we might say something like what, what Paul seems to be describing is something like a police function of the state yeah. to check chaos, right? Uh, not create more chaos. You know, war, warring is creating of chaos. Police function of the state, rightfully, rightfully, uh, rightfully practiced, is a very careful due process checking of violence and checking of crime and so forth. Um, and so, I, I just think that in all of this, it's central that we always be holding up this sort of call to nonviolence that seems to be central to Christian discipleship, even though it gets really messy and knowing what that means or what that looks like. Let me ask, and I think that's really helpful in clarifying, but kind of taking it maybe a little, let's speak to our, our, uh, tribe a little bit. Not, not that maybe that's, um, maybe that's uncharitable because nobody's a monolith obviously, but if you were to look at, at American evangelicals and try to name where they they are, which is really hard, right? Like these are big generalizations, but there seems to be a really strong, to your point, a liberal right side that is saying, hey, class, you know, a lot of Catholics actually are really comfortable with the idea I've found, like Dean and you mentioned failure of liberalism and others who are writing a lot right now are kind of saying, hey, we're in a post-liberal society. We've seen where liberalism has gotten us. Everybody's saying, like, you're free to do whatever you want, but that's not really the right tradition. The right tradition is maybe more of a classic virtue. We're trying to we're trying to help inculcate certain values and virtues into society, and that doesn't mean just be free to do whatever you want. But the next move seems to be, so we need to use the coercive power of the government to then force people to adopt our conception of the good. And so I guess part of my question, I know I said a lot of crazy things or big things there, but it's this fight, you know, French is having, David French has had it. We've had him on the show before and he's talking, he kind of represents more of a pluralist, classical liberal voice versus the other side who's sort of, uh, you know, saying what I just said, probably in a not very great way. But the point is, I guess my question for you is, how do we as the church, the picture you present in the book is so good. How do it seems that if we're honest and speaking about evangelicals, it seems that we find ourselves in a place where we've become handmaiden to a party. And some people are going to be really, some people will really hate that I said that. Some people will say, you're, you know, that's very uncharitable, but let's just to maybe name it ugly to try to to try to get some forward momentum it seems that there is a lot of a lot of commitment to a party rather than a to use your term of commitment rather than a commitment to 
an alternative kingdom that is able to speak prophetically and winsomely and, and display, as you write in the book, the wisdom of God to the powers. And so that's a, I'm saying a million things there, but I guess my question to you is, so there's an alternative kingdom to let the cat out of the bag. This kingdom, the way the church functions properly, politically speaking, is to be in a position to show and display the witness of God, which is an alternative kingdom, to the powers that be. This is a big question. How do we do that? Is it through virtue formation? Is it is it classical liberalism? What is the picture of that on the ground for the person who's like, okay, fine, does that mean I do or don't vote for Trump? You know, And I don't think the answer is that easy, but maybe speak to some of my ramblings there. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me give one um, important um, historic note and then a more direct answer to your question. So of historic note, uh, you're, you're saying that some people would feel really um, frustrated for you to say that uh, perhaps, uh, if I understood what you were correctly saying, um, perhaps American evangelicals have become the handmaiden of the Republican Party. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, from books I've read and scholars I've talked to, I think it's really important that we consider very seriously that that's precisely what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, um, the um, Randall Balmer, uh, we've got an interview with Randall Balmer on the Tokens podcast. Um, Balmer came out with this this book last year that's terribly troubling. And what he argues, and and through his own historic research and encounters that he had with some of the Republican playmakers, key Republican playmakers leading up to the election of Ronald Reagan in the 80s, is that that going back to the 70s, abortion was not the bellwether issue that that got American conservative Christians involved in politics. And what Balmer argues is that there's a the, the history shows that the the Republican playmakers who were trying to get evangelicals to vote for Republicans could not get evangelicals interested in politics until the federal government started telling white academies, you can't have tax exempt status if you're going to practice segregation. And then what do you know? All of a sudden they found, hey, we can get all these evangelicals to start voting for us. Mm-hmm. And there's his, there's historical, serious historical evidence that this is what happened. And then it wasn't until the late 70s, going into the election of Ronald Reagan, that they also figured they could bring abortion into the mix and get other people to, to, to further solidify, galvanize this right-wing base. And so it was, you know, from the perspective of people like Balmer, uh, people and, and other scholars who have done this work, what they're saying is that, look, there were per- certain political playmakers who said, we want to use this group of people and we're going to find issues that we can use to leverage them, to get them to the voting box to vote for our people. And they got them to vote out of office, you know, to not reelect a good Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher who said radical things that sound in certain ways like the gospel, you know, in, in office. Um, and so, and it, it been put in place somebody who would push, you know, this other sort of agenda. And so, I, you know, I'm sure that people do find that storytelling offensive. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Mm. And it's worth taking very seriously that that may be the historical lineage of some of the stuff that is now coming to full flower in the United States. Um, of course, Kristen DeMay's book, Jesus and John Wayne, um, is another kind of classic telling of some of this kind of story that's worth paying a lot of attention to and so forth. Um, but more directly now to your question, what, you know, what does this look like? And Elizabeth noted this a, a moment ago that the, I think it's the last proposition in the book mm -hmm. is that, um, Christian political witness must always be ad hoc, which is to say, which is to say, um, not ideologically committed to a party. Mm. So in other words, it's, um, um, we're always asking what's the issue right in front of us that we think we can bear, bring to bear the witness of the gospel on this particular issue without having to, to bear a commit allegiance to one partisan position or another. Um, so I, 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 you know, I don't know that this is good at biblical exegesis, but it really, it, it, it preaches good um, <laughs> and works good rhetorically. But, you know, when you think about uh, the, Gen the Genesis story with the story of Joseph, you know, I've, I've laughingly said in presenting this material that um, anyone who is ideologically opposed to big government has a really big problem with the end of Genesis, because that's the way Joseph saves the people. He imposes a very heavy tax builds up a lot of surplus and saves the people from famine. And he is celebrated in the biblical story because of his big government policy. Mm. It's right there. You know, you can't argue <laughs> with that. That's precisely what he is. <laughs> but then the book of Exodus opens and you could, you could make the case that it's the big government apparatus that Joseph helped build that then turns demonic. And what it does is it enslaves the Hebrews. Um, mm. And so I think that it's crucial to see that uh, when conser political conservatives say we're afraid of the power of big government, it's like, well, I am too. Mm -hmm. And everybody ought to be because this, this is what power does. When power gets power, it, it inexorably overreaches. And instead of serving humankind, it, it seeks to preserve its own status and power and therefore um, at worst, enslaves or kills humans. Um, at the same time, um, you know, there, there are certain things that me and my vision of the world and even a local community can't, can't, there are certain problems that we just can't fix. You know, it, it, it appears that we're now beginning to see what a lot of scientists have been telling us for 20 years is going to happen as far as the climate crisis is concerned. Mm. And, um, you know, your church and my church aren't going to fix this problem. And unless a major government powers and major global corporate corporations decide we're going to do the right thing here and try to make a difference, then a lot of the poor of the earth are going to continue to be disproportionately affected by climate change. Um, and so there is a place where big powers and big money has to try to do the right thing. Um, and so I think it's always trying to be cagey and wily and ad hoc, always trying to bear witness to the gospel that's crucial in all this. It's not simple. I have no naivete about this being easy, mm. um, but I think it seems very realistic to kind of take this kind of approach. Yeah. And I think we, uh, the reason, one of the reasons why I think people 
um, want to find allegiance in one party or another is because, and I'm pulling off what you said at the very end, because that's simple. Mm. Um, because I want to believe when this party quotes scripture, when this party um, tells me that they are the savior of the world, you talk about that in your book and the ways in which yeah. we pollute the gospel um, and make America the savior of the world and not Jesus. Um, right. This belief that... Um, However they are presenting themselves, it doesn't make me have to consistently engage in the deeper issues. And so not taking, oh, they care about these two things, but what else are they uh, doing and helping to uh, foster in my community, in our nation, that lines up or does not line up with um, a biblical worldview? And that takes work. And that takes right. commitment and engagement um, and I think that is the place of that our engagement in the world as believers is not passive, but it's active right. and it's continuing to call out, but continuing to celebrate, like you say in the book, um, but continuing to be involved. And I think the simplicity of saying I'm with those people means I don't have to pay attention because mm -hmm. I trust them to do the work. And it's saying, no, we have a responsibility to make sure that the way that we show up in the world aligns with the biblical worldview. And that's not a one-time thing. That's an all the time thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. And, um, you know, the, the notion of, to use the language of scripture of being, a, being a neighbor and loving our neighbor, mm. or to use the language of politics of, of, um, learning to be a citizen mm. and to take the common good seriously. Uh, that undercuts that sort of classic liberal individualism that just focuses upon me, right? Mm -hmm. Because it pushes us towards community. It pushes us towards the complexities of shared life. It pushes us toward having to take seriously the implications of social policy, political decisions, and so forth. And that's that's not easy stuff. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's also true that not everybody can do everything. Uh, you know, a, a new mom with a with a baby is is um, um, a new mom and dad with a new baby that they've got certain things in that season of life that they're having right. to tend to, <laughs> right. um, and so forth and so on. But but nonetheless, uh, it doesn't exempt us as human beings from trying to take seriously what it means to be a citizen or what it means to love our neighbor. Mm. Um, and you know, these are central to what it means to be a human. That's really really good. I think as I listen to us and we're talking, there's a lot of implications that I think might be kicking around in people's heads, but I, and I just want to be cognizant of that. But I think um, so often, I think our natural pro proclivity as I listen to, to us talk is, um, for all of us, is to subordinate the gospel of the kingdom underneath a different lie really right a false gospel a, a, an idea that um you know god can only be served if we're if our group is in power or you know there's a lot of ways to right. name it but the idea that it seems like so much of what happens is is instead of asking the question in a holistic way what is the story of the gospel telling us and what does it mean to love my neighbor we say well it must just mean to love our neighbor means small government and uh, you know, um, whatever, not, not, uh, you know, abortion rights or, or, or you know, um, anti-abortion, having an anti-abortion stance. And I think what we're doing in that sense, though, is then we're elevating ideology, right? A a 
uh, over in, uh, and above what the gospel would say. So I think the practice or discipline maybe, and you can help us with this, Dr. Camp, but the practice or discipline for us might be when we are finding ourselves inflamed and outraged, because that's the culture we're in, when we're finding ourselves outraged by the other side, when we're finding ourselves outraged by another headline of something we think is unfair or whatever, and this is for either party, what maybe the discipline is to first ask, what does the gospel demand? What does the gospel say? What, what idea do you have as a catch for us as we're battling and working through the difficult way? Like you said, this isn't easy. It's nuanced and difficult. What is a, what's a discipline that we could take on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, those, those are, that's a, maybe not a question right there. <laughs> um, so let me just throw out three quickly. Um, one would be taking seriously the socio-political nature of baptism. Mm. And so if we um, stop seeing baptism as some sort of religious rite, R-I-T-E, religious rite that has nothing to do with real life, and instead realize that the Apostle Paul saw, saw baptism as a socio-political practice, which broke down barriers of hostility between hostile political groups. Mm. So neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, bond or free, but all are one in Christ. Um, and realize that um, baptism commits me to a shared allegiance to Christ with people across any and every boundary that the powers may be using to alienate us one from the other. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I always often think about, it's been a long time since I've looked at the, um, the particular particulars on this story, but I remember from the first Iraq war, um, following the first Iraq war, uh, the U S imposed U S and the UN imposed very heavy economic sanctions upon Iraq. And there were, um, accounts according to the UN that half a million children aged five and under were dying in Iraq due to the U S UN sanctions. Because, you know, people don't know this, but in the first Iraq war, uh, the, the, military policy of the United States was to bombard infrastructure. And so you've got water systems destroyed, you've got electrical grids destroyed. And so children are drinking dirty water and dying of diarrhea. You've got mothers having children with grave birth defects because the U.S. had dropped depleted uranium bombs on Iraq and it's getting down into the water supply. And they've got these weird cancers and this horrific stuff happening in birth defects. And so a half a million children age five and under, the UN says, are dying because of these U.S. sanctions and practices. So in, in many cases, as I recollect, it would be impossible to get parts to fix the water system that the U.S. had bombed out and kids are drinking dirty water. It was in some cases hard to even get certain antibiotics because they were thought of as weapons of war. So it was this horrific sort of economic practice. Um, the U.S. came back and said, no, it's not 500,000, it's 200,000. The uh, Iraq said, no, it's 900,000. So whatever, it's hundreds of thousands of children aged 500 that are dying. At one point, um, the Catholic the Catholic bishop of Iraq came to the United States and he castigated American Catholics because he said, you're not paying attention to the fact that your government's policies are leading to the deaths of your brothers and sisters in Christ mm. in Iraq. Mm. And what he was doing was he was pointing to the socio-political implications of baptism, right? Is that there, there's a common shared commitment that has to trump 
your national allegiance. So baptism, we could lots of examples of that, but that's a significant one. Uh, second one I would say was, is Eucharist, right? So um, in the Christian tradition, Eucharist and communion is grounded in a shared table. And in my mind, I, you know, we, we can learn a lot from taking seriously um, sorts of literal practices, table practices of learning to sit with people and learn to talk to people and to practice Christian hospitality. Christian hospitality is a much preferred virtue to liberal tolerance. Mm. You know, tolerant puts up with people. Christian hospitality welcomes people and and, and it knows we're different, right? And you don't know, you're, you may be entertaining strangers unawares as, as scripture says. Mm. And so um, you're always welcoming the stranger. Muslims in many ways are much better at this these days than Christians are in the Western world um, because it's part of their tradition as well. Um, but to practice table hospitality and to learn things that we might not, that we may be blind to by honest conversation and engaging others. The third practice I'd point to is, um, is um, a much under, under considered practice that's basic to Christianity. And that is the pr simple practices of humility. Um, I, the former governor of the state of Tennessee, Bill Haslam, interviewed him a couple of years ago for our podcast. And Bill is a very committed Christian, uh, Presbyterian and Republican. And uh, when I asked him, you know, in what ways has your faith informed the work that you've done in public service? Uh, what, he, what he first pointed to is he said that one of his mentors, uh, who was a famous uh, Tennessee senator for many years, Howard Baker. Howard Baker used to say, um, the most important posture for you to have as a politician is to know that the other fellow may be right. Mm. And uh, then Bill went on to say, as Christians, we ought to know that of all things that we could be wrong. Mm. And that in a posture of humility, what we can do is encounter the other person and see where see what they have to say and um, to see what we need to learn. And to not assume that because we disagree on something, we thereby can't do work together or listen to each other or encounter the other. And so I, I like that approach that he gives because it, it's a sort of, it's a very different approach than saying what it means to be a Christian in, pol in politics. And now we're using the American notion of politics. But what it means for a Christian to be in politics is to bring certain biblical values to bear and to try to push those out in the public space. Mm -hmm. It's very different to say, as a Christian, my character is one of service, is one of humility, is one of welcoming the stranger, mm -hmm. is one of welcoming others who disagree with me and see what we can do together. That's a profoundly different sort of political posture and Christian posture than boiling it down to imposing biblical values upon the public square. Mm. You know, this, this beautiful biblical narrative, um, the story of scripture that paints a picture of who we are in Christ, but also the world we've been given in a world in which that we are set up to work together for the flourishing of all. Um, and this fallacy or, or lie that we believed that Christianity, that our faith tradition is separate for what it means for us to care for the world, which in the common language we use is what it means for us to have a politic, what it means for us to be concerned about how we govern, um, the way that everyone shows up in the world for their flourishing. Um, and Professor, um, you have just 
I think, a lot of thought-provoking ideas about the ways in which we have not done this well, but also Mm -hmm. casting a vision for the opportunity we have to show up as people in love who are concerned about our neighbor and also walk in integrity to say, the only kingdom that we have ultimate allegiance to is the kingdom of God. And one that was here before America and one that will be here after America transitions into whatever happens, um, hopefully long after we are all um, with the Lord. Um, but thank you. Thank you, Professor. You, it has just been a joy to talk with you. And if you are listening, you need to pick up his book um, because we did not have time to cover a lot of the good nuggets that he has provided for us there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. That's a, um, that's a beautiful summary and um, a very gracious feedback. So I, I'm really grateful for that and appreciate that very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with both you and Adam, and I appreciate y'all, your invitation, and uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This podcast is made possible because of a team of people behind the scenes. Chris Starrett, Chelsea Conway, and Mandy Page. We couldn't do it without them. If you're a follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. You can also support us on our Patreon page. Check the show notes for more information. See y'all next time.